Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Well, hello and welcome to GodPod 74. That's our number for today, nearly at 75 which is kind of feels like a significant number of some kind. Yes, we'll have to have a celebration for that, won't we? What's yeah. the 75th anniversary? Is that diamond? No. No, 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 no. That's no. 50. I don't think, it, don't think it gets to a, it gets to a thing, <laughs> does it, really? I mean, it stops at golden at 50, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, so anyway, that will be next time, 75. Today is 74. And uh, we have today uh, Jane. Hello. Uh, we have um, Stephen, Stephen Backhouse. Hello again. Who has been on several God Pods before. And there's a member of our staff team here at um, St. Melitis College. Uh, but we also have a special guest today, who is Elizabeth Oldfield. Hello. Elizabeth is the director of Theos. And uh, we've had uh, one or two people from Theos before. We've had Nick Spencer come and done a couple of God pods with us before. So um, so we know a little bit about Theos. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth, tell us a little bit about um, Theos and what it does and just remind us of your... Mm. Um, the, the the role that Theos plays. Yeah, um, we're a, essentially a Christian think tank, I think is the simplest way to describe what we do. Uh, we have been known as a public theology think tank, which gives you a clue if you kind of have an understanding of that term. But um, I think probably for a lot of people, that sounds a little bit too technical. So we tend yeah. to go for kind of Christian think tank. And then the question always comes, what's a think tank? Um, yeah. And there's lots of sort of old chestnut gags around that. But it essentially means... A research organisation with a perspective. So we do research and we come from a position. And our position would be that Christianity um, in particular, religion in general, has loads to offer. Um, contemporary British society can kind of contribute to the common good. So we spend quite a lot of time kind of unpacking some of the arguments against that and also doing empirical research to demonstrate that. And you've come up with a lot of different reports over the last few years. And how long has yeah. Theos been running for now? Six years now. I okay. can stop talking about it as a baby organisation. Yeah, no, it's new. I think it started similar sort of time to when we did it at St. Melitis. So, I think um, so, yes. Yeah, that's right. I wrote one of the first reports for Theos. Yes. My goodness. So what was that about, Stephen? Stephen? Well, that was about patriotism right. and national identity. Right. Yeah. Mm. I'm very good it was, too. <laughs> very good. So um, now we've got Elizabeth here, we're... Uh, you know, spend this God, God pod thinking a little bit about some of these issues around um, faith in public life, how Christians engage with uh, a wider society which may or may not be particularly Christian. And um, I suppose, I mean, just, just in, in general, the, the maybe a, a way to start off with this is to ask the question, um, in general terms, what do you think is the best way for Christians to engage in debates over public policy, ethical issues, uh, in a way that is constructive and helpful rather than just kind of sniping from the from the sides. Uh, because it, that seems to raise all kinds of issues as to, as to the relationship between Christian faith and the church, mm. uh, particularly in a sort of maybe pluralist, secular society. Obviously, that begs a lot of questions. Are we pluralist? Are we secular? Uh, how religious is our society? Um, but how do we go about doing that? And so, um, I mean, Elizabeth, you may want to start. Others may want to yeah. chip in with that one too. I think there's lots of levels to that question. There's the kind of 
philosophical undergirdings, um, the the assumptions basically that are present whenever Christians try and get engaged in public. There's the idea that maybe faith is is a private thing. Maybe that should Mm. be kind of just kept behind church doors or at home with your family. Um, And we would argue that that's quite problematic. And you probably want to start challenging that in a really kind of gracious way pointing out some of the the inconsistencies with that Mm. view Mm. um but then there's the really kind of practical tonal i guess um elements of of how we go about it and i'd want us to be thinking incarnationally in terms of um being present being engaged being Mm. um not afraid to Mm. work in politics work in media uh Mm be really present in academia Mm. really kind of seeking out um to be amongst uh Mm. the places where those kind of big questions Mm. those big Mm. stories are are being made and being distributed so that kind of presentness is important it's Um, an interesting mm. point you make about the tonal side of it yeah yeah in that which because i guess the one question is that you know how how, what kind of arguments are used and Mm. so on the other is about the tone of the debate and Mm. is there a distinctive christian tone yeah to argumentation that might be different from what, say, a political party might use or might be there in the, the wider discourse in public life. Yeah. Is there yeah. a distinctive Christian tone that you'd say that is yeah. appropriate? Um, I think you probably can't say one tone is appropriate in all times and all circumstances, mm. so I'd want to kind of hedge this a bit, but um, certainly an acknowledgement of the... Um, the other people if you're talking to someone directly or the kind of wider society's humanity and Mm. um, worth um, that kind of listening tone that Mm. posture that approach that says I'm not just coming here to to throw my opinions at you but I genuinely Mm. want to hear Mm. what you're saying and why you're saying it that approach and openness I think is a really good starting point Mm. and then when you're actually bringing um, a Christian perspective on an issue doing that in a way that's gracious Mm. that doesn't use jargon uh, that doesn't Mm. assume more knowledge than the Mm. other person might have um, but seeks to kind of build common ground and find connecting points Um, those are the kind of tonal uh, Mm. approaches that I'd want to be encouraging do you have Mm. any examples of when it's been done right or maybe people around the room have you ever seen Mm. it done the way that you think yes I I really like that Yes, lots. <laughs> I'm trying, scrambling immediately to think of a, a particular one. I think Jonathan Sachs does it uh, very, very well from a Jewish perspective. Okay. Um, he's obviously drawing on a different tradition, but his approach is very, very laudable. Um, you know he knows what he's talking about. He's incredibly informed, um, but his openness, his willingness to ask the big questions and not yeah. assume answers right from the outset yeah. um, makes him very popular with sceptics, with, with non-religious thinkers. Um, and I think the big questions are part of the point, aren't they? That that a lot of the, the, the issues that face our society, we want um, immediate uh, immediate practical answers. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that as Christians we always want to do is put it in the bigger context. How is this helping Yeah. Mm. Um, human beings to be human so, so the, the the phrase you used was about the wider society mm. um, and I, I, I hope that might be one of the things that Christians would bring in tone to these conversations is putting it always in a bigger context. And there is a I suppose a, a quite important theological perspective behind that a proper Christian modesty I think in these kind of mm. discussions in the sense that we do 
believe in, if you like, that truth is is eschatological in the sense that it's mm-hmm. God's truth that will one day be revealed in its entirety, and that, that that now we, as Paul puts it, we see in a in a in a mirror dimly, mm, exactly. and we don't grasp it all now, and therefore we don't come to to, to debates with a very fixed position. We know exactly the truth, and we're going to tell you. Um, it's that truth is God's truth. We have a we think we have a clue to what that truth is in Jesus yes. Christ a vital clue to it if not the vital clue to it uh, but actually it's something that can be discovered as we uh, as debate continues and that, therefore that there is a proper christian modesty i think mm. to, to, in, in of tone in those debates yeah. rather than a kind of very hectoring dogmatic tone yeah. that can sometimes yeah. marilyn robinson is someone who, who yeah. um, would be another really clear example i think what's interesting is she's often using the arts and um mm. her her literary fiction um creates immediately that place of kind of questioning and discourse but even in her essays where she's being really quite straightforward Mm. um, laying out ideas her tone um, is just winsome and compelling Mm. she's doing the uh, Theos annual lecture later this year which is wonderful and the reason I uh, I love her but the reason that I was finally convinced that she was the right person is that there's a piece in the New York Times called Why I Love Marilyn Robinson and it's basically an an atheist saying Mm. she makes me want to be a Christian because yes. she shows me a world mm. of which I am I want to be a part um, and that is that if we had millions of Marilyn Robinsons mm. my job would be a lot easier and it's worth I mean for people who don't know Marilyn Robinson's work I mean her novel Gilead I think is one of the very best novels I've read for a long time in terms of mm. a piece of Christian fiction which one is, of the few um, fiction that mentions Karl Barth as well. It does, exactly. <laughs> it does. He gets a mention in there too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. points. Her yeah. and John Updike. The only, I wouldn't recommend John Updike novels quite so strongly <laughs> as Marilyn Robinson. But one of the things uh, that I'd love to, to, to for you to help me think about, Elizabeth, is um, obviously there are already Christians involved in 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 all of the major public um, uh, organs of state in politics, mm. in media, in the NHS, and in, in uh, across all countries but they don't necessarily um frame their argument in terms of their christian faith so mm. so you, obviously their faith is informing how they involve in yeah. how they involve themselves in debate do you think christians should always say mm. i'm i'm making this point because i'm a christian or do you think actually sometimes it's more helpful um, if we don't if if um if we try to make common ground yeah. that isn't doesn't rely on um, the faith perspective i think very often it's a a case-by-case thing if you're thinking relationally you're thinking about the person that you're talking to if you're putting um their good as priority then that will help guide you in that in that question but ultimately talking about kind of two poles one of which is um a very privatized approach to faith whereby we are really afraid that anything we anything we try and justify on the basis of our kind of Christian worldview, our Christian perspectives will be dismissed out of court and I think if we retreat to that then it's not just bad for us but it's bad for society as a whole because we don't get to um, hear a different perspective which challenges perhaps a utilitarian way of looking at the world or a very kind of um, um, markets driven way of looking at the world and that would be a huge loss and then right at the other end you have people who kind of have to attach a bible verse to everything they say and I think obviously it's somewhere in the middle um jonathan chaplin wrote a really helpful piece for us on this called um talking god Mm. the legitimacy of religious public reasoning and it 
it's been massively helpful for me to think through um, the fact that it is quite important, actually, that we graciously, confidently challenge the assumption that faith reasons are never legitimate. But that doesn't then mean that we use them all the time. Um, and I think it just takes a, a bit of um, a bit of thought, a bit of sensitivity, and again, thinking about your audience. My background's at the BBC, um, mm. but I think that works for apologetics and public mm. engagement as well. Do you think that... Uh, it's interesting you brought up the BBC. Uh, do you think that there are some subjects that just can't be dealt with in the public media? Like, Christians sometimes try and talk about things... And it just doesn't work, like, to, to speaking to an anonymous public. Like, sometimes there's a lot of Christian things that have to be pretty much spoken about in the room with the people in an engagement kind of way. Like, I guess I'm specifically thinking about the kind of uh, thought for the day thing, where lots of Christians get um, upset if, if they lose this thought for the day, which, for listeners who don't live in England, uh, is, is a sort of five-minute slot in the morning on morning radio, where usually Christians or religious leaders get five minutes to talk about something and there's every once in a while there's moves to kind of get rid of it but i kind of wonder if maybe sometimes five minutes isn't really enough anyway so would it be such a loss if christians lost some of these these chances to broadcast themselves publicly I, it depends what you think that five minutes is for it's, yeah. it's not enough to lay out a kind of christology or yeah. um to hmm to persuade anyone of anything but i think one of the things it does for all its quite serious limitations i think uh is is that kind of yeast effect it puts little blips on the radar it it just interrupts the dominant narratives when it's done well it subverts some of the dominant narratives um on a regular basis and therefore i don't think what i don't i hope there's no subject that is so complex that you can't talk about Hmm. um in public i think probably that is quite and I would fall into this as well kind of what a more academic leaning person would want to would mm, um, mm. maybe retreat to mm-hmm. I think all subjects should be able to be at least raised mm. hinted at um, rumoured in public even if to do serious justice to mm. them you need a different kind of format I mean, one of the um, arguments you sometimes hear out there is that because now we're in a broadly well, secular society, supposedly, where Christians or the Christian voice is a minority voice. It's not certainly the dominant voice within our uh, our culture. Therefore, um, you know, every every time a Christian speaks from a Christian perspective, that should somehow be disallowed because it's a perspective mm-hmm. that actually most people don't share. And therefore, those arguments, by their very nature, mm-hmm. uh, cannot be allowed to be part of public discourse. Uh, because it's kind of coming from this privileged position that doesn't ever doesn't everyone else doesn't share. We have to, uh, to to kind of argue on the same basis as everyone else. And uh, I guess you can see that from both points of view. You can see it from a sort of secular point of view. You know, be wanting to argue that Christians shouldn't really have much of a voice in this. Um, you could argue that almost from a Christian point of view, in, in in the way of saying, well, actually, we do have a different framework of thinking. We have a different understanding of the nature of reality, mm. a different understanding of the way in which human beings exist within the world and are related to God and, and nature and everything else. And so, you know, to what extent is conversation possible, even possible, uh, in, yeah. in in those? So you, you can see that argument being made from both ends, from the kind of atheist end and from certain Christian. Ends as well, and so I suppose I'm wondering how we address that 
Um, is it right just to say, well, actually, no, we just talk different language. You know, we are Christians. We start from a Christian perspective. We, um, it isn't, we isn't necessarily talking about a privatized Christian faith because you could actually say, well, we have a very distinct kind of Christian view of the world. But actually, we just talk a different language from a secular society and therefore engagement isn't really that possible. Um, but at the same time, you know, how do you argue it with, a, with, a, with the atheist who actually says no Christian shouldn't have a voice because their perspective is different? I mean, I, I, Stephen, you have some thoughts on this as well as Elizabeth and Jane. But. <laughs> is, is uh, when you were talking, I kind of thought, is saying, is beginning a sentence saying, as a Christian, I think this, is that the same yeah. as beginning a sentence saying, as a vegetarian, I think this, or as a lesbian, I think mm. this, or as a wheelchair user? I mean, we keep adding these prefixes to our sentences and i don't think they're all the same i think all those things are slightly different and i don't know if if as a christian i think this dot 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 i i do wonder how useful that is i mean for one thing we we don't all agree even as as a christian it's hard to even agree on something so i i don't know i you could say as a human being I think this. And and the, and I think that's quite an interesting thing to say because I don't think that in some of our big discourses we do say that enough. We don't get down to what makes for human flourishing, what kind of a society yeah. enables yeah. all its citizens to participate and and enables all their voices to be heard. And that's something that, as a Christian, <laughs> hmm. um, I we would want to put in to any public mix isn't it that that we actually the, the, the faith that we hold is one that is about um, human flourishing and the fulfilment of, of, of the work of the creative God so that although you might not necessarily want to prefix every sentence with as a Christian I say this you mm. might want to say prefix quite a lot of discussions or put into a lot of discussions what is the big picture here mm. what is the vision of, 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 of what makes for a society that will help human mm. beings be human yeah. behind this bit of legislation, this bit of media work this bit of whatever the public discourse is that you're involved in mm. and I think that's that's why both of those arguments either from the secularist perspective or from the Christian perspective are wrong and um, because if you believe that God creates humans, then you believe that actually there's something fundamentally similar about humans and that in becoming a Christian, you don't become an alien race who can't yeah. translate. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think when Paul stood up and spoke at Mars Hill, he thought, gosh, you know, I speak a different language to these people, which you, you know, possibly, te- you know, did in, on lots of different levels. He thought, here are some people. <laughs> I'm mm. a person mm. and I've got something to talk to them about. Um, so I hope mm. that we can be quite confident in a plural society that everyone's coming from a particular perspective everyone has a, a language a set of jargon a set of ideology you know, when a, a marxist comes into the public square and speaks from a marxist perspective i definitely won't understand most of the things that they're drawing on and referring mm. to but if they're good then i'll get what their vision of mm. the good is what their vision of the common good is what their vision of human flourishing is and i can offer mm. them mine and then we look and talk and, and see which one we think is best. And I think that's one of the things that as, as Christians, I'm using the phrase again, we do really want to get into um, the, it, the, the mindset is that we are not arguing about what's good for Christians. Exactly. We're not yeah. simply defending the rights of a particular yeah. minority yes. group. Yeah. We are wanting to talk about the purpose of human existence. Yeah. And that yeah. is something that, that, that ought to be, it ought to be possible then to be a common discussion at least even if as you say Elizabeth people bring different languages and perspectives to that but it doesn't mean a kind of Christian discourse that 
is aware of not just the surface issues but the deeper differences of perspective and because it does seem to me often in in in, um, public debate you know there are certain values we share as a society which are arguably quite deeply rooted in enlightenment thinking which have been particularly there since the 18th 19th centuries um which uh as christians we may not share and uh, the reason why we come to different conclusions on a number of issues is actually because there's some fundamental convictions we have about uh, what really ultimately matters might be slightly different from uh, or at least we would see those things in different different ways and that's why it just seems to me that that um you know it's often that kind of debate that's the most fruitful one mm. not so much on the particular policy of taxation or mm. you know gender or whatever else it might be but it's the kind of deeper issues of what are the fundamental values that that make for a good mm. flourishing society yeah and our you know and our sort of connectedness I mean, it seems to be one of the things that the enlightenment has done is actually to disconnect us from god from nature from one another and actually make us into these very isolated individuals mm. and a lot of our public thinking or ethical thinking actually comes out of that perspective that we are just individual people who have rights and, and to uh, and are isolated from one, one another actually as a christian i want to challenge that and say mm. actually no we are deeply connected to god to each other to nature and that's that brings forth a very different ethical vision yeah and those kind of debates seem to be much more interesting than the kind of more what do you think about rights language and minority groups language elizabeth um i think that we often have to treat them with real caution. Right. I I just want to come back and challenge Graham a little bit, if you don't mind. Mm. Really just to say that the space where you can have those big idea conversations is very limited. And yeah. it's obviously something that we're mm. really trying to do at Theos. Mm. It's basically what we spend our days doing, that kind of philosophical archaeology of mm. what what mm. you know, what's driving this stuff. Mm. But I think one of the most important things, and what we're trying to learn to do better is to connect that with where the conversation actually is happening, mm-hmm. which does tend to be mm-hmm. concrete issues. And the skill, I think, I'd love to do it better, is to take the concrete issue and reveal the ideas underneath yeah. it. So sure. in the kind of equalities debate, mm-hmm. you probably do need to have something to say on that, yeah. um, but not in a that kind of defensive, our rights, Stephen's yeah. kind of language, yeah. but more in a, we understand equality we think that actually it's Christian thinking that has allowed the West <laughs> yeah. to even have a concept of equality. Yeah. You know, that kind of historical perspective is often yep. useful. Yeah. Um, and then to say, and we would, Christians are pro-equality. Of course we are. Yeah. We just have other moral goods and different ways mm. of conceiving mm. how that gets worked out in public policy mm. um, than perhaps other people do. But not to get caught in that trap of we're anti-equality. I think that's nonsense. Mm. Um, so kind of attaching it to to things people are anxious about now yep. Yep. is where it's really fruitful but it's difficult and feels quite dangerous <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean going on to a, to a slightly different um uh, area but related one uh, one of the things i suppose that's that's increasingly common in um political debates on this side of the atlantic and the other side as well and elsewhere in the world too is this question of, of to what extent should the church step in where the the state is retreating hmm. um i mean here in britain we have the kind of big society agenda um which may or may not still be <laughs> on the government's agenda we don't hear so much about it now but um but the, the, the idea that actually the, the state should be quite small and volunteer groups faith groups should step in to provide public services in a way that the state perhaps used to do 
and um, and there's some interesting arguments on both sides. Some people say that's a great opportunity for the church to step in and provide um, public services in, in a way that the state used to do. Other people would say, actually, you know, that's an abdication of responsibility by the state uh, of not looking after the, mm. the poor and actually leaving it slightly more fragile and random so that people can sort of fall through the, the cracks. Um, now is there a Christian contribution mm. to that debate and how do we approach it? I mean, one of the, the great stories that Stephen tells in some of the courses you teach is is, is a, about Christianity in the early yeah. church and, and how it was actually um, taking care of each other that... Um, was, was the it, plagues. Yes, exactly. Tell, yeah. it, tell us the story, Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I'm... I'm it's been p- very well told by uh, a historian named Rodney Stark, the rise of Christianity. And, I mean, he essentially argues or points out that it wasn't kind of clever clogs, apologetics or political, you know, forming a group and lobbying for power or military. It was, quite frankly, it was a couple of very severe plagues that struck um, the Roman Empire in the sort of late 100s and early 200s. And uh, and it was the Christians who didn't flee the cities. They took care of their neighbors. And you basically had a better chance of surviving if you were a Christian or knew a Christian. And he argues that it was that. It was just simply t- loving your neighbor and not fleeing to the hills and actually helping nursing them through this this time of illness that, that it sort of raised the status of Christians you know, in the wider society. And he argues that's what led to the point where somebody like a Constantine, it could be politically convenient for him to, to kind of connect himself to Christianity mm. because it was so popular. It wasn't a, minor, a majority faith, but it was just so, mm. it, I guess, winsome. You already used that. I mean, it, it had just mm. proved that it, it wasn't about to mm. destroy the empire. It was actually sort of something people liked. And you could argue, actually, there's something similar is going on in a lot of the kind of Middle Eastern countries today. I mean, it's very interesting to think about the Arab Spring, that after the Arab Spring, a lot of those uh, countries in the Middle East have actually elected quite strongly Islamic parties. And the answer, why does Hamas come to power yeah. in, in uh, Gaza? Why does the Muslim Brotherhood come to power in, in, in Egypt? And the argument often is that actually they, they're pretty good at looking after people mm. in terms of their charity work in terms of their feeding the hungry in terms of their providing for unemployed families they're a lot better than a lot of the secular parties are and so you can yeah. see the same dynamic yeah. happening can there. i recommend uh, to, to to people have you ever heard of william kavanagh the theologian in william kavanagh you can find it online on, on uh, an essay a brilliant essay he wrote called killing for the telephone company why the modern state is not the best keeper of the common good or something like that it's definitely killing for the telephone company William Kavanaugh, and he's an American Catholic social thinker. Mm-hmm. And he argues very much this. He says, you know, the, the, the dominant narrative is that it's the state that takes care of us and is, is kind of this secular, neutral body that takes care of us. When in fact, the story of the state is often a story of, sort of violently wresting control from smaller groups, more human-sized groups, mm. uh, and dominating them. And, and so, you know, he has a note of hope. He's like, actually, you know, religious organizations can can meet needs that the state cannot meet mm. and the state is in some ways effectively a, a telephone company it's a service provider and it doesn't answer all the needs mm. all the human needs that we have so mm. anyway I, I recommend that as a one conversation have you ever read him or do you know about this i have read him i haven't read that right um but it's obviously quite a, a common um yeah posi- a, a common political theology um to be 
suspicious of the state but there's equally huge numbers of kind of serious christian theologians who would argue the opposite that actually you know and even in the setting up of the welfare state in the uk Hmm. um the huge involvement of archbishops and christian thinkers Mm -hmm. in saying you know our mandate to provide for the poorest and to um kind of create a society which is just is best delivered Hmm. through um something that is 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 more universal and is is, i I guess formalized um Hmm. so Basically, it really depends on your political theology. I don't think that there is an easy way of reading from scripture uh, what right. the, that balance between the you know um, public services provided by the state and the church feeding the poor and hungry. I think always the church should be feeding the poor and hungry. Mm. I don't think there's any way we can get out of that. And I think I and others are not doing enough of it. Um, but I don't think that necessarily means that it can mean that but I don't think necessarily means that we have to be um, very relaxed about the state withdrawing those services um, that actually we might feel that certainly with the church, the church the size and the spread and the structures that it has currently in the UK we're just not a, a good enough safety net we, we should be doing more um, but leaving gaps while the state retrenches um, is something that lots of Christians are really concerned about whereas others see that as an opportunity and hmm. I, I would want to say we need to think about it deeply we need to read deeply but um, ultimately it will come down to where you lean politically based on your theology and that and it may be both <laughs> doing what you can locally to make sure that real local need is recognized and the thing about churches they are genuinely local communities that tend to know local needs in a way that sometimes the state doesn't oh, yeah. um but at the same time, reminding the state of its responsibilities, yeah, and uh, right. both of those things may be quite important. Yeah. For, that kind of for advocacy, advocacy yeah. and service. Exactly, seeing both of those as our mandate, yeah. um, I think, is vital. Yeah. That's what Romans thirteen is all about, isn't it? It's, it's a little yeah. group of Christians. They, they had here's Paul talking in Romans thirteen one to seven. Here's Paul talking about what government is for, and when the, at the time of his writing, there's not a single Christian who had any hope of ever being in yeah. government or having any control, and yet here he is telling government what they're there for and it's very similar to jesus before pilate saying you know you only have authority because my father gives it to you christians are always reminding the state what it's there for but i also think it is uh, this a good challenge um, that you're holding up elizabeth that churches also need to examine what they can do i mean i I think Mm. actually if you look at most church groups they have amazing resources they may not be um um money mm. necessarily mm. Mm. but we you know often a building in a very strategic place um often a, a congregation with all kinds of skills that mm. that could be offered mm. um and um i mean i'm sure it's it's right that we need to do both we need both to look at local need and to be lobbying for for um a, a continuity of care across the country but but i think we have got a bit complacent mm. as christians about what about our in involvement in in mm. primary mm. Um, charity? <laughs> Certainly, the state having met so many of those yeah. primary needs for a long time has perhaps mm. um, uh, numbed us to s- mm. to seeing them as as ours too. Yeah. One last question is before we um, wrap up. Uh, do you do you have any advice for people listening to this who are Christians who are, have conversations with work colleagues, family members, people in their local communities on ethical issues, whether it's abortion, whether it's gay marriage, whether it's 
um, taxation policy, whether it's sort of local provision of public services, you know, all the kind of issues that people mm. talk about. Um, do you have any advice for them on how they engage constructively with those kind of discussions and how they bear witness effectively to, to, to Christ and the kingdom of God in those discussions in a way that's not kind of crass and, and privatized, but is really, really helpful? Because I guess some, um, you know, you can do it on a, on a large scale level with MPs and peers and, and um, politicians. But I guess for a lot of people, it's just that what do, what do you do in those conversations? How do you engage constructively in those? Yeah. Um, I think the kind of big scale principles work on a small scale as well you you listen get a sense of where they're coming from you try and get a sense of what are the ideas underlying them you can ask some really good questions like what do you think is the kind of ultimate moral good here you know how are you understanding equality what what do you think a good life is because if we know what a good life is maybe we can get to what a good society is so this kind of questioning digging um approaches can work quite well and then when you're really putting forth positions just making sure you're doing it in quite human terms remembering who it impacts not talking Mm. in kind of quite cold big picture language Mm. um thinking Mm. about real human lives real human hearts um and seeking to translate into a language they can understand so perhaps Mm. rather than talking about human sanctity which is quite a particular doctrinal position talking about human dignity the christians are for human dignity um and that's something that they're more likely Mm. to be able to connect with Mm. um that kind of the ways i would start but it's never easy yeah sure thank you and i think both in public and private it helps if you've earned the right to talk i mean if you've actually demonstrated your commitment to the public good or your commitment to a relationship with a family member or a friend um before you start um, before you start um, holding forth yes (laughs) i think i think it needs to be anchored doesn't it in in if if we're talking about human dignity we need to show that we are treating Mm. people Mm. um in that kind of way yeah Mm. and it's probably being being aware that it's you say it's 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 both dealing with the the immediate issue but it's also the larger background Uh, i love the phrase you use what is the philosophical architecture Mm. behind it and that actually what we're trying to commend here um ultimately is not a particular political position but actually it's jesus christ um and the whole way of looking at life through the lens of of Christ, and um, and working out that that's ultimately where, where where we're what we're trying to bear witness to, because mm-hmm. ultimately Christian faith is not ultimately it seems to be about freedom or equality or justice. Actually, it's about Jesus, yeah. and it's about those things as redefined by Jesus, and somehow that's how we need to 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 get to it. So, and that that again can be a prop. There can be a proper humility in that. Which is not this is the way it is, but this is how this is how I approach these issues. This is how I can make sense of them from my perspective and offering it in that way. So offering it as a contribution to the the debate rather than laying down the law and saying this is the way it has to be. Definitely. <laughs> anyway, um, we come to the end of our time. Uh, Elizabeth, are you, you laying down the law? Are you ending it? I am definitely this laying down the law. It has to be. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. No. No. No questioning allowed here. Um, <laughs> So, uh, Elizabeth, thank you very much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. It's, it's been, been wonderful. It's been great to have you with us. Uh, next time round, I don't know whether Mike will be back with us or not. We may be back for number 75. I think next time round, it's going to be taking part in the Holy Spirit in the World Today conference. Oh, it is. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. We have a conference coming up. Um, although if you're listening to this after the conference, you'll have missed it. But it's on March the 14th and 15th on the Holy Spirit and the World Today. Uh, capturing the imagination of the culture. That's the um, 
the theme and the idea is how does the Holy Spirit help us in this work of um, reimagining culture uh, and maybe even recapturing the imagination of a culture that was once captured by the Christian story but probably isn't anymore. Uh, how might that happen again and how might the Holy Spirit in particular uh, help us do that kind of work? We've got a lot of really interesting seminars on different aspects of popular culture and media and so on. Um, economics and business uh, we've got some great um, speakers and um, that's happening 14th 15th of March here in our main centre at St Jude's in uh, Earl's Court in London go onto the website of stmilitiscollege.org and if you are listening to this after those dates a lot of that will be available on the website we hope yeah it will and uh, Elizabeth if people want to find out more about Theos how do they do that we have a website which is www.theosthinktank.co.uk or you can follow us on Twitter or you can find us on Facebook all manner of ways great very good so thank you Jane pleasure thank you Stephen thank you goodbye thank you Elizabeth thank you very much and uh, we'll uh, see you next time that was Godpod a podcast from the St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.